I hear your truth, or, or I experience your goodness, or my heart is full of gratitude. And then the very next day, all of a sudden I start to feel anxious again, or I, I start to feel insecure, or I'm not quite sure how a situation is going to be controlled. I see how easy it is for my heart to wander in those moments, for my mind to get distracted, for my judgment to become clouded by, by, by trying to grip my own life and control it the way I want it to be, or, or maybe I just stop even caring what, what you say because all I can hear is what I want in that moment. Lord, for, forgive me for that. But Lord, what I hear and what I recognize about who you are and what Jesus made so clear to all, to me and to all of us is that even when our hearts are prone to wander, you say, just come back to me. Come to me as you are. And then I will grow you from there. We know that you meet us right where we are because you want to do something in us. You want to lead us from that place. You want to mature us and grow us. But instead of thinking we have to clean up our act first, we just come to you right here as we are. Whatever pressures, anxieties, stresses, whatever selfishness or pride, anything that binds us and distracts us from you, may you just deal with those things in our hearts and our minds. May you point those things out that we might know that there's a God of love who just wants us to lay those things down that we might be free. We might follow you completely and wholly with all of our lives. Show us how to do that. God, I know that you have a word. You have something that you want to say to each person in this room today. I pray that you'll make that clear to them. God, I know that you have a story that you're telling through everybody in this room today. And whether we realize what it is yet or not, we know that you are at work. And so we just open up our hearts. We say we trust you. We know you love us. We know your arms are open to us. So will you come and say and do whatever it is that you want to do in us? In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat, everybody. Man, what a, what a rich song, huh? Like every, every time that comes right out of that story of the, of the son who ran away from the father, when the son gets to the end of himself, comes home in total shame, the father meets him in total embrace. And I hope today that if you didn't realize it before, that you realize that God... Jesus came in order to break the shame that keeps us from God. The shame cycle that says, ah, you're still not good enough. Jesus came to undo all of that. I mean, I'll explain more about that here in a moment. But, man, it's really good to see you guys this morning. We, we are continuing worship um, and opening up Scripture together. Uh, we are back in the Gospel of Mark in this action-packed account of Jesus's life. Now, so far, we've been in the first eight chapters of Mark, and we followed Jesus across this northern region of Israel, predominantly in an area called Galilee. And we've so far heard his announcement that God has come, the kingdom of God has arrived. 
We have beheld his power to heal and set free. We've experienced his challenge to the religious leaders. And we felt his compassion to the desperate. But now, as we reach Mark 8, 9, we see that Jesus has now made a turn south and he's beginning a journey toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he knows that a cross awaits him there. And he even tries to let his disciples in on this. What, what is about to happen to him. And even though they don't understand, he consistently lets them know that what's about to happen is no accident, but is the actual plan of God. And as his journey torn, turns south, though, he stops off in the town of Capernaum to have what is a sobering teaching moment with his disciples. And as the cross's shadow looms over him, Jesus explains to these guys who are following him that if you are following me, you're going to have to take up your cross too. And for those of us here in this room who would say that we are followers of Jesus and who are seeking to model and, and, and become like him too, if our king became a servant who gave himself away in love for us, then we do the same. So if you remember last week, we particularly looked at the first half of what Jesus said to his disciples in that house in Capernaum and saw that he was specifically applying that if he was a servant king, then we are to serve one another within the church, honor each other as children of God. And so that was a lot last week. If you, if you missed last week, please go back online Listen to Jesus' words here. Allow them to sink in. But this week, we're going to look at the second half of what Jesus says here at the house in Capernaum. But instead of focusing on our relationships with each other, Jesus' focus now is on you and me as individual followers of his. But I'm going to tell you right now, he holds nothing back. What he's about to say are arguably his most provocative words in the Gospel of Mark. Because he's, he's not going to hold anything back. And if you have a problem with what it is he says today, li listen, take it up with Jesus, okay? I'm just going to say that right here. Take it up with Jesus. But we're going to look at it honestly. Even though that some things may be hard to hear in Scripture, we're going to look at them honestly. But, but, but please, I want to tell you one thing before we read it. Even though what we're about to hear is hard at points to hear, don't miss the central message of what Jesus is trying to say. Don't be so focused on the, on the difficult or the hard part that you miss the main message of what Jesus is saying. You know, when I was in high school... Uh, the church that I went to had invited a guest preacher to come preach one Sunday. And I'm sure this guest preacher had a lot of great things to say. But honestly, looking back, I only remember one thing he said. And I remember this. He got up from the church and he started snapping like this. And he said, every time I snap my fingers, someone is dying and they're going to hell. What are you doing about it? I'm, 
not exaggerating. Now, did he have other things to say? Did he talk about Jesus? Like, uh, probably, right? But all I remember that day was going to hell and what are you doing about it? So much so, and I'm not exaggerating in the least. Like, I was so terrified by that that I walked out of church that day, and I don't know why I picked this place, but I went straight to Walmart. And I found the most unsuspecting person in Walmart, which was this lady stocking shelves. And I just walked up to her in like a, a frantic, I'm like, where are you going when you die? And I will never forget her terrified face. And, and she, and she uh, like mumbled, uh, I, I, I go to the Catholic church down the street. And I had no clue what to say. So all I kind of like, uh, uh, okay. And I just walked away. <laughs> I just walked away. And I'm sure in that moment, like I just imagine Jesus was just giving it the face palm. Like, you've you, you got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Did I talk about Jesus after that? Nope. Just walked away. Just walked away. Because, man, like, what, again, I'm not saying anything against that, that, that speaker that day. I'm sure he had great things to say. But all I could hear was hell. And so that's all I communicated to this woman. That's all I could. And I'm pretty sure I missed the central part of what he was really trying to say. And see, in what we're about to read in a moment... Jesus is going to talk about hell. And he minces no words about it. But as we read it, I don't want you to miss the central point behind it. And what it is he's trying to say. So as we unpack Jesus' words, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 to 50. And first, we're going to answer the question, well, what is hell? What does scripture say about it? And then second... Why is Jesus talking about it? What is it that he needs his followers to see? And last, taking all of that into account, how does all of this make a difference for our here and now in following Jesus today? That's where we're going. You guys ready? I'm not sure. So we say, I don't know. We're going there anyway. Everybody stand up with me. Mark chapter 9. Verses 43 to 50. I'm going to read this out loud while you you can follow with me. Verse 43. Again, this is Jesus speaking to his followers. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell through the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now if you can, pray after me. Say, God, 
Open my heart, open my mind, transform my life. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So I think it's pretty fair to say <laughs> that, that mo a lot of us in here can make a case that these are the most provocative words in this gospel. We just talked about severed limbs, unquenchable fire, and worms. Like, whoa! <laughs> it, it, if, you, if you can't help but have a visceral reaction to it, I, I think that's, that's part of it, right? But what is it that Jesus is saying here? And why is it that he's saying this? Why would he describe this in such a, a, a visceral, unapologetic way? Gosh, I need us to get this. See, Jesus wants nothing more for us than that we spend eternity with him. Jesus wants nothing more for you than you spend eternity with him. One of the big questions Jesus is answering or getting at in this passage is, well, what does happen after we die? But that question alone Man, it makes us squirmy, doesn't it? It makes us uncomfortable. Especially in the 21st century. Lydia Dugdale is a medical doctor, and she's a Christ follower, who wrote a brilliant book called The Lost Art of Dying. And in it, she describes, she says, you know, prior to the 1950s, she says death was a more normal part of life. Right? Most people prior to the 1950s, they would experience at least a family member or loved one pass away in front of them because most people died in their own homes. Death felt more normal. However, the taboo subject prior to the 1950s was sex. Right? That was the assumed thing but not mentioned. But she says that something happened around the 1950s, 1960s. When you had the love revolution, and media began to make sex more mainstream. But however, at the same time, a lot of, a lot of the care, the tough work of caring for the dying, was, was, was put into hospitals. Big hospitals. To where instead of in homes, a lot of that happened elsewhere. And so a lot of people no longer experienced that firsthand. And Dugdale says, she says, death came to replace sex as the ultimate unmentionable. Today, most of us don't have to experience firsthand the reality of someone dying. And when we are, aren't confronted with that personally, then we are not necessarily prone to then ask, well, what does happen after we die? And so we can see for the 21st century why Jesus' words are even more provocative for our society here. But without mincing words, Jesus says, he says, there are two realities after we die. Two. He says, number one, this is verse 47, he says, either we enter the kingdom of God, which refers to the eternal dwelling place of God, or heaven. The very place where we are more alive than ever, and everything is saturated with his love and glory. Or two. We go to a place called hell, which Jesus describes here as the place of God's judgment, 
where there is unquenchable fire. And he says, and worms feed on the decay. Note, Jesus doesn't give us a third option here. He says nothing about a purgatory or any other place where there might be a second chance. But instead, the original word Jesus uses for hell here is the word Gena, which immediately conjures up the image of Gehenna. And see, in the Jewish mind, for anybody who is used to Jerusalem and, and all of that, Gehenna meant something very specific to them. That name referred to the massive trash dump that was right outside the city of Jerusalem that consistently burned because trash was always being added to it. It was the place of an unquenchable fire and where worms fed on the decay. And so Jesus is referring to Gehenna in order to incite, it's a pretty horrifying image if we're honest. It's a horrifying image. Because he's trying to describe for them, he says, this is the image of what this is like. And he says, and I want you to get two main things about Gehenna, or hell. He says, first, hell is real. Hell is not a metaphor. It's not just an idea. And it's certainly not a joke. God is the creator and sustainer of life. But hell is only destruction. God's kingdom is saturated with his presence, but hell is devoid of it. And to be cut off from the presence of God of life, that is meant to cause a chill within us and evoke a healthy, holy fear within us. It's real. Second, that what happens after we die is irreversible. If heaven is the ultimate destiny for all those who love God and want to be with Him, then hell is the destiny for all those who don't want Him. Some teachers of the last couple decades, Rob Bell being one of them, have speculated, well, maybe there's a second chance that after we die, maybe we get a second chance to choose God or not. But I'm sorry, no matter how much I want that to be true, there's not even a hint of that in Scripture. If you don't want God in this life, then you will spend eternity without Him. So what happens in hell? What, 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 What is that like? Man, I wish I had more time for this today. And I think maybe this would even be worthy of of some other teaching, some other day. But I should say, there are solid Bible-believing Christians who are split on, well, what exactly happens in hell. Some Bible-believing Christians believe that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. That you're there forever and you are aware forever. There are other Christians who back up biblically. That they say, well, actually, no, hell is a place of total destruction. Where those disconnected from God, the God of life, cease to exist. So is hell a place of eternal punishment, conscious punishment? Or are, are those who go there just, just wiped out from existence? Now, you may have grown up in a tradition that taught you just eternal conscious torment. Or maybe just taught you the other way. But, but I would encourage you. 
If this is something that, that, that you're not sure about, then study Scripture on your own on this. Because personally, if you ask me, what is it? I'm not sure yet. I'm still wrestling with Scripture on that. But the truth is, I don't want to determine my view of hell based on what I want it to be. I want to try to study Scripture and take it from here, right? And I've seen a lot of valid arguments on both sides to support that. And so that's something, honestly, I'm still wrestling with. I'm not sure. But either way, if we do take Scripture seriously, we do have to realize that hell is a real destination for those disconnected from God. And once there, separation from God is irreversible. But see, this is why the good news of Jesus is so good. Because Jesus wants eternal life for us, not death. And this is why he sacrificed himself to save us. Because of our sin and rebellion against God, we deserve death and judgment, not Jesus. But God laid the full weight of our sin upon his innocent son. And when death was our destiny, Christ came, became our sacrifice. And he took our sin upon his shoulders. And he went down into our death. But unlike us, death and hell could not hold him because it had no right on him or to him. So the spotless Lamb of God rose again, breaking open the grave for all of those who would give their lives to him. And this is not because we deserve it. Oh no, not because we've earned it. But it's because God is that good. Man, I... I know, I know we've all asked the question and probably heard the question, why would God even allow hell? But what's interesting to me is we rarely ask the question, knowing who I am, why would a holy God ever allow me into heaven? And the only answer to that question is Jesus. It's Jesus. That we are saved from the judgment of God and a godless eternity when we believe in what Jesus has done for us and we commit our lives to him. And see, the reason why, why such provocative words, Jesus, is because he loves you that much that he doesn't want you to experience that. He wants to provoke you to turn to him and know him. It's only love that causes him to share this. And if heaven and hell are real eternal places, then how does that change our lives today? Because truth is, man, we don't create eternity around what we want. Like, we mold our lives today around the reality of what Jesus says eternity is. It doesn't matter what we believe. What matters is what is true. And we can believe something our whole lives and find out at the end of life it's not true. So what does Jesus say? And if our eternity hinges upon whether we have a connection with Jesus, then what should we conclude for our life now? That it's better to follow Jesus through the fire in this life than to spend eternity without him. And Jesus is laying out for his disciples as strongly as he can because he needs them to take this seriously. He says, I'm not, I don't want you to live this life and miss this. He says, 
If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. He says, because it's better that you lose one of these things than spend all eternity separated from God. Now, how are we supposed to take that? In the third century, there was a Bible scholar and Christian philosopher named Origen of Alexandria who took this command literally. And because he was having a hard time controlling his sexual desires, he literally castrated himself. It didn't take too long after that, though, for the church powers that be in the Mediterranean world to outlaw such a practice. <laughs> like, whoa, hold up, man. Because why? Because like, if my eye causes me to sin and I take that out, guess what? I can just as easily sin with my other eye. Because we know that the eye is not the root issue, right? It's my heart. It's my heart. But Jesus is trying to communicate here. He isn't talking about physical amputation, but spiritual self-denial. In Jesus' day, a lot of teachers commonly referred to sins with certain body parts. You know, so, so your hands referred to what you do or your habits. Your feet referred to where you go. Your eyes referred to what you see. So you, you put it all together, and you realize Jesus is really encompassing all of life and all of who we are here. And Jesus is saying that it's better to practice healthy self-denial in this short life than hold on to our sin into the unquenchable fires of hell. You tracking with me so far? You guys okay? You say no, it's okay, right? His point, sin is serious. And our decision to cut it away must be treated as final, not halfway. In Mark 10, which is the very next chapter after this, we read about this rich young guy who asked Jesus, point blank, well, how do I inherit eternal life? And this guy, man, his life looked picture perfect. He was successful. He was moral. He was a good guy. Right? I'm sure he was nice. But the passage says, because Jesus loved him, he looked at him and he said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See, right then and there, Jesus saw that this man would never really be able to follow him. Because at a heart level, this young man would rather have pleasure in his life without Jesus than experience poverty in this life with Jesus. Something else held first place in his heart, and he was not willing to give that up. And it doesn't matter how moral or how successful, or even if you volunteer at church. anything holds the first place in our lives other than Jesus are we really following him because Jesus will not allow us to follow him halfway he will not allow us 
to pay him mere lip service. If the sin that separated us from God was so serious that Jesus sacrificed his life for it, ought we to treat sin the same? But no one can cut the sin away for you. You can't wait for your mom, your dad, your friend to do it for you. That's a decision between you and Jesus. And yes, when we deny ourselves and when we cut off certain habits and things in our lives that we know are not of God, is it painful? You better believe it. It hurts. This is exactly why Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross like I did. But I tell you, there is nothing this world can give us that can light a candle to an eternity with Christ. Please hear me. If we see what our Lord was willing to do on behalf of our sin, how can we treat our sin flippantly like our pet venomous snake that we just keep around? But let's go back to the hands, the eyes, the feet. Regarding our hands, are there habits in our lives that we don't want anybody to know about? That we just keep on the side, but we know is getting in the way of our relationship with Jesus? Talking about our feet. Are there places that we go, situations we're putting ourselves in consistently that is putting temptation right in front of us and and nearly making it impossible to say no? Talk about our eyes. Am I reading, watching, viewing, taking in things that I don't want anybody else to know? You know, this past year saw an unprecedented rise in the amount of hours of online porn viewed. Do you realize that what is impure can't dwell with what is pure? If that's you, get help. Talk to somebody. What do you need to do to cut that out of your life? Would you be willing to go as far as to get software on your computer to tell somebody to get honest about it, to do something that you might lay that down before Jesus says, I want no more of this. Cut it off. And then when we take our sin, whatever it is, you know what we do with it? We metaphorically nail it to the cross of Christ, knowing that the grace of God always meets us there. Always, just as we sang, run to the Father. And this is exactly where everlasting life begins. Some of you, you've already given your life to Jesus. Man, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like you've begun that journey with the relationship with God. But an everlasting life with the living God begins at the point where we say, Lord, here's all my life. All of it. Not that I'm perfect yet. Like that's God's job, right? Like to grow us and disciple us and teach us how to be like Jesus. But at least I'm not fighting you anymore. Come do whatever it is that you want. 
This is the cry of a disciple that even if you lead me through trials and difficulties, I trust you're good. And for the Savior who sacrificed himself for me, I give myself to you. And as we trust Jesus to lead us even through the fires, we are a living sacrifice for him. So before Jesus could leave Capernaum, he has a couple more things he needs to say to his disciples. A couple things that I, I felt the need to clarify here. First, he tells them, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, to be clear, this is a different kind of fire than the fire of hell he's talking about. Like he, He's now talking about a different thing. And, and what he's talking about is the fire of sacrifice. Because in the Jewish mind, when, when, you, when you heard salt and fire go together, you immediately think that conjures up the image of the grain offering or sacrifice that was laid upon the altar in worship to the Lord. Leviticus 2.13 lays that out. And see, salt itself symbolizes purity or holiness. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you, me, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, that our lives are meant to be a sacrifice, pure and holy, laid down before Jesus. The Apostle Paul echoes the same thing when he says, in view of God's mercy, in light of what our Lord, our God was willing to do for us in love, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. But I want you to get this. A living sacrifice is not one that's manipulated into it. It's not one that's bound, forced, coerced, or abused into it. A living sacrifice speaks of someone who is in light of God's love and his goodness and his truth and what he has done are choosing to respond in love and worship back to God. It is the fulfillment of the great command Jesus gave us. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, a.k.a. everything you are. And that is what a living sacrifice is. A living sacrifice is willing to walk with Jesus, even if Jesus leads us through it, the fires of life, so they know his love is true. And they trust he's good. But even when God may lead us through difficult situations, through the fire, so to speak, we realize we have a Savior, a Master, who suffered too. And he promises that if he ever leads us through a difficulty, through a fire, through a trial, through something we can't control, that God never wastes pain. Peter says it like this. He says, these, being the fiery trials, have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, and faith is of greater worth than gold, because gold perishes when it's refined by fire, but faith, when refined, results in eternal praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And that any time Jesus leads us through a fiery trial, it's to refine us and make us holy like him. Or as Jesus puts it here in verse 50, he says, anytime I lead you through the fire, it's to make you salty. Now why would he say that? 
because he wants us to understand the nature of it. And salt serves two functions in that day. Number one, salt was a preservative, preserving meat and food from decay. If hell is a place of worms and decay, the followers of Christ work in this world as a, as a preservative force. The, instead of using our hands, our feet, and our eyes for other things, our hands raise up the broken. Our feet go where others are afraid to go. Our eyes look for the lost. This is what it means to be a holy, purified follower of Christ. Preservative, but two. Salt also heals wounds. It's a healing agent. If hell is a place of death, followers of Christ bring fresh life. And we do so as we learn to speak truth, even when it stings. We speak grace to trauma. We speak calm to anxiety. We come Learning to live in and with the love of Christ that binds up the brokenhearted. That lifts up those who've been crushed in spirit. And we come to bring the fresh life, the healing power of God. But Jesus says, don't be fooled, salt can lose its saltiness. And in that day, salt lost its saltiness whenever it was intermixed with chemical impurities. Impure substances. And that's exactly why Jesus said, and do you realize that for a follower of me, that sin is not who you are anymore. You have the pure Holy Spirit within you. How can what is impure dwell with what is pure? And if each of us my desire for my life, I want to be that salt. I don't always know how to be. I want to be a preservative. I want to be a healing agent in the midst of this world. I want to be used by God, don't you? But Jesus says that if you want to grow in that, he says then you have to learn to walk through the fires of life with him. And some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Because, man, if any of you have been through one of those situations, maybe when you didn't have any money left, you didn't know where you were going to live, a relationship just broke up, someone you loved nearly just died. Like, like, we all go through these fiery trials, and we feel confused, and we feel in the darkness, and we feel like all we have is Jesus. And when we walk through a season like that, all of a sudden, all the superficial, vain things that we used to care about just don't matter as much anymore, do they? And all of a sudden, God begins to show us what truly matters in this life. That Jesus is enough. And that even if we have to deny ourselves, and even if it's painful to give up certain things, we look at the cross yet again and we remember, if anything we're going through, he's already faced it. And anywhere he leads us, he goes with us. And anything he does in us, it's always to make us like him. The God who became a sacrifice for us is the same one who refines us that we might burn brightly for his glory. Why do we have this cross on the back wall? Like, that's all we got. <laughs> Why do we have that there? It's because this is what our Lord was willing to suffer 
to redeem us from a destiny of hell, to save us from the judgment our sin deserved. This is how much our God loves you. The Apostle Paul showed up in, in a metropolitan area of Corinth. Corinth had all sorts of fancy, talented performers and teachers and philosophers. Paul says, I came into Corinth knowing one thing, Christ and him crucified. Why? He said, because that slices through it all. It reveals the vain things of this world and reveals what truly matters in this life. And that is that we have a God of love who wants a relationship with you. And he's just waiting for you to come and receive it and give your life over to him. But this cross also radiates not only the heart of God, but it also radiates the call of our lives. And that just as he became a sacrifice for us, so do we become a living sacrifice for him. But to be fair, to use the word sacrifice for what we give him, is that even really the best word? When I think about it? Like, am I even sacrificing when I give to him? Like, if, if in following Christ, I'm exchanging my sin-stained soul for his holiness. If in following Christ, I'm, my, I'm exchanging my temporal life for his eternal presence, my pitiful attempts at recognition for his everlasting glory, my feeble attempts of control for his sovereign plan across history, my, my, my cheap earthly performance-based identity for one that never spoils or fades for, as a son or daughter of God for eternity, is it even fair to call what I give him a sacrifice? The God who became a sacrifice for us is the one who refines us that we might burn brightly with his glory. Church, please don't fall for the lie that our way is better. Please don't fall for the lie that giving up our lives for Christ isn't worth it. Please don't fall for the lie that because I don't want this to be true, it must not be true. Please surrender all that we are to him. And I want to encourage us. The worship team is going to come on up. If you know, man, like I got some things I'm holding on to that I just need to lay down before God. I want to encourage you to take a step of faith this morning. And as the worship team sings this next song, I want you to come down and stand right here or kneel down here, whatever you want to do. Because sometimes we need a tangible, practical step, literally, as a sign of our commitment to Christ. Will you come down here? And I'm going to ask all our prayer partners in this room, if you're in here and you see somebody come down, can you come down and just lay hands on them and pray for them? If you're not a prayer partner and you want to come down and pray for somebody, do it anyway, right? Like, that's fine. But I want us to, let's not pretend. Let's take this as a moment where God says, I want to liberate you. I want all of you. And I want you to know all of me. Is he not worthy of it? Is he not worthy of it? Yes. Lord Jesus, will you search me? Will you know me? See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Thank you, Jesus.
for loving me so much that you gave up everything on a cross in order to save me. And Lord, I give you permission that if there's ever anything in my life that I'm keeping between me and you, things that I, I, I'm just not willing to give to you, that you'll just show those to me. And that as I look at what you have done for me, may I be willing to lay that down for you. That I might live pure, holy, as a preservative, a healing force in this world. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said. Will you stand? If you want to lay something down, just come on down. You can kneel, you can stand. If you want to pray for somebody up here, do it. Let's, let's just spend this time, whatever God's asking us to do, let's do it.